This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Shriver. We're here to talk about books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit Podcast. If you're listening to us for the first time, or you have been listening for a while, could you please take a second and scroll down to the bottom of your podcast app and hit the five stars? That helps us move up in the world. And if you're thinking, I don't know if I want to give them five stars... Rest assured, we've got a great discussion today about a great poet and short story writer. You will not regret it. You're going to love it. He's a fan favorite, even though, I have to be honest, he's not one of my personal favorites. No disrespect. It's on me. Today, we're going to be talking about, and we'll be talking about him next week, too, the one and only Edgar Allan Poe. (laughs) Should we have spooky music when you say that? I mean, I like Edgar Allan Poe, and I remember reading his stories in class as a teenager, and it's one of the few things I actually remember from my high school English classes, and the stories are very entertaining. I know, and he's still super popular. All of my kids really like him, which is incredible, because he's super hard to read. Uh, And I brought this up when we were talking about Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, but I really don't like being scared, and Poe's scary. (laughs) He is. His writings find humor, even, in the way that they're grotesque, and that's a lot of the reason why people like him. There's a range from gothic horror to true evil to the struggle between the rational and the crazy, and sometimes they're even sad, but mostly they're frightening. That's his contribution, and it's just not my genre. I have to respect the art. I tried to pick a couple of less creepy pieces for this series, though. I don't want to go down that road of burying people alive, and he can do that. (laughs) (laughs) Mm. Well, in that case, uh, thanks for taking one for the team uh, for this special holiday series. And uh, If you're listening to this in real time, we're doing Edgar Allan Poe this week and again next week because here in the United States— it's Halloween, one of the absolute biggest holidays of the year. And in uh, most of Latin America, just south of us, it's followed up by the Day of the Dead. So it's all in the spirit of community, which in Memphis, to be honest, Halloween is more about community than anything else. That is true. I know that's true. Candy's been purchased and everyone's in the spirit of getting outside and seeing your neighbors that you really don't see much during the year. And I would like to point out, it's the only time of the year we're begging for food door to door. Is allowed is once a well, year. Well, at least it's a socially acceptable as is the best way to spend your evening. Sure. I mean, <laughs> you show up at somebody's house on March 12th and ask for food. It's not going to be well received. <laughs> no. At Halloween it is. Well, anyway, my son Ben and his wife Rachel, um, they live on a street 
where the decorations and the trick-or-treating is serious and competitive business. They have made a special COVID candy shoot. So kids won't have to come all the way up to the door this year. So they're going to send candy down a shoot they made out of plumbing pipes into the buckets of the trick-or-treaters. And, um, I mean, uh, that's true innovation and effort for the season. So <laughs> kudos to them. Uh, so, Christy, uh, think of that instead of all the gore this week uh, uh, as we highlight the popular short story, The Cask of Amontillado. And next week, the very popular poem, The Raven. And uh, per our usual, let's start with the life and times of a very interesting Edgar Allan Poe. Yes, and I know we could talk really for an entire episode just about his life, but the cask of Amontillado really is interesting. And so we are going to just highlight a few things from Poe's life. Then we'll talk about his mysterious death next week. Maybe we'll circle around and catch some more fun facts next Halloween. And maybe I even feel brave enough to tackle a creepier story. (laughs) But this is a good one. Uh, Poe's life had so many self-sabotaging events, and it very much mirrors the chaos and gore that so often characterized his writing. Lots of people have questions whether he was mentally ill. Gary, do you have any thoughts on that before we start to illustrate what I'm talking about? Uh, I mean, well, let me say that it it goes without saying that you cannot, uh, and I haven't seen any articles from any real legitimate sources that medically diagnose a person who is not alive. Um, And since Poe died in 1849, uh, it's nothing but speculation. At that time, people used the expression that someone was mad, but uh, science has evolved significantly since those days. And and we do understand a lot about what haunts us as humans. And from his writings, uh, we can see a lot of this reflected in his world. And today there are treatments that can really help change the course of people's lives, uh, like who back then would be condemned to just feeling lonely and estranged and depressed and things that, you know, Poe powerfully illustrates in his stories. And uh, I will say that uh, genius and insanity, some would say, is often entwined. Like, it is in Back to the Future, the oh, mad scientist. <laughs> okay. Opposite sides of a coin, if you will. Yes. Now, there's many examples uh, in history of amazing people who've stood out in their generation by being great artists, but uh, who likely truly struggle with some shadow of mental illness. I mean, we obviously think of Van Gogh, but others like um, Mark Twain and Herman Hess and Ernest Hemingway and Virginia Woolf and uh, Sylvia Plath are just a few writers that pop out immediately. And Poe seems to fall in this category. And um, Poe himself once said, when asked if he was crazy, interesting comment on himself, he says, the question is not yet settled whether madness is or is not the loftiest intelligence, whether much that is glorious, whether all that is profound does not spring from disease of thought, from moods of mind exalted at the expense of the general intellect. Wow. And that's actually really insightful for a person. If you think about it, he predates psychology. I would like to point out, we've been saying for as long as we've been doing the podcast, (laughs) 
that the best writers were amateur psychologists. They uh, did not really know what they were looking at, but they could describe it in writing. And, of course, uh, people respond to that by saying, yeah, I know exactly what that person's like. And so uh, I do want to go on and say and be clear about this. There's no one that claims that mental illness promotes artistic talent. that's a notion we we don't get into, and it's a generalization that that trivializes some serious medical conditions, and it also discredits artistic genius that it's innate to other artists. And, and having said that, um, there does seem to be some correlation between some disorders and the ability to create incredible art, especially in artists who suffer from bipolar depression and uh, bouts of uh, hypomania. I mean, the, uh, there's reason to believe that these artists, uh, because of their hypomania, experienced enhanced rates of original thought, which is an interesting idea. Uh, they can experience unusual creative thinking, uh, increased productivity. Um, there's evidence to suggest uh, that these artists also experienced increased fluency and frequency of thoughts. That's another great idea. They often tend to rhyme and use other sound associations, uh, such as alliteration and, and musical things like that. And sometimes there's something called clang associations that are can figure into that. And it seems that for some uh, creative people who are already gifted, um, manic depressive illness provides an opportunity to actually produce art because during these times, they don't require much sleep. They can focus intensely, vigorously, and uh, even with great confidence of thought on their art. And I read one researcher who concluded that uh, contradictory mood swings, when they are harnessed, enhance the artist's already innate ability to accurately see uh, and reflect truth in nature and humanity in a way that those without these biological issues simply cannot even detect or feel, much less put into words. Wow. So what you're saying is if you are already a genius, an artistic genius, this disorder could actually help you enhance your genius into works that maybe you otherwise wouldn't have been able to do? Uh, yes, that is, that is possible. Uh, and see the world from a perspective that, that others simply cannot see. So, um, I mean, that's one way of thinking about it. And, of course, it goes without saying that any mental illness naturally comes with a lot of struggle. And Edgar Allan Poe, whether he suffered, as some suggest, from bipolar depression or not, he really seriously reflects great struggle. I mean, so much internal uh, and external struggle, lots of it that he created himself. Um, But a lot of it he did not. He was victimized, especially as a child. That's true. His life, there's no doubt, was truly difficult. And under any circumstances, no matter how your brain is wired, would struggle, anyone would struggle with these kinds of life traumas. What's remarkable is that he was able to hone this. In fact, if you want to say it this way, he was kind of honed in art because he was born to actors in 1809, and apparently his mother was a fabulous actress. His dad, not so much, I guess pretty <laughs> average on the stage, and off the stage, a pretty much a schmuck. He abandoned them. His mother died before she turned three, a death that he always remembered and spoke about. He talked about her vomiting blood and being carried away forever by horrible men dressed in black. So... Most scholars agree that this death, her death of tuberculosis, 
really changed him and in many ways informed a lot of his work. If you notice, lots of his stories carry with them this idea of being buried and being lost and then coming back, living versus dying. He had also an idealized image of who his mother was, and we can see you know, idealized women also in a lot of his writing. Well, she was the first woman he lost, um, but loss characterized every relationship with a woman that he loved for the rest of his life. I know. That's just so sad. Even in high school, he had a close friend, and he loved his friend's mother, and she died of tuberculosis. He had a stepmother that he loved, Francis. So this couple, I guess I should say, Francis and John Allen were this really wealthy couple that took him in after his mother died. But they never adopted him. He and the dad never got along. They were at odds for the rest of his life. But the mom and he were really close. And of course, she died tragically. Never mind the fact later on, we're going to find out that his wife died. So... That's a lot of loss. When his real mother died and he was taken in by the Allens, Poe went to live in England with the Allens and they sent him to boarding school. Uh, you know, a very lonely place, it seems, for Poe himself. But he did hit the British literary scene at a great time. And during his education there, he was exposed to the great romantic writers, to Byron and to Shelley, and uh, which are two that we've talked about. But he likely read a lot of romantic writers. Well, I'm sure he did. And you can obviously see this from the Gothic influence in his work. In fact, lots of critics make fun of him because he's over the top with these kind of romantic notions and styles. And I will say, you can't deny that he kind of goes a lot <laughs> out of control. We'll see this in The Raven. The man loves him some alliteration and rhyme. The American poet Ezra Pound said that, Poe never used a noun without coupling it with an adjective, preferably vague and suggestive of horror, <laughs> gloom, vastness, strangeness, and indefiniteness. Of course, all that's so true. <laughs> what a gift <laughs> to be able to put a haunting uh, word with a noun every time. And Well, after this, we're going to read a real British Gothic tale with Wuthering Heights, and uh, we can see for ourselves the comparisons. True, and I know I'm getting ahead of myself talking about the unusual and really iconic style of Poe, because everybody knows Poe when they read him. He does have this real original style, whether you like it or not. He refers to a lot of bold colors, black, white, red. He uses long words on purpose, Latin-type words, when he could use short words. For example, you would never be sick with Poe. You would be suffering from a malady. So that kind of thing is just all over the place. Well, you know, contrived right or not, uh, he was clearly extremely bright. And uh, when it came time, Poe managed to get admitted into the University of Virginia, where he studied French, Italian, Spanish, Latin, obviously has a gift for language yes, for in, sure. in every way. And he was doing really well until he self-sabotaged. And he got mad because Mr. Allen wouldn't give him enough money to live off of. So by way of getting back, he took up gambling and he ran up debts and got himself repeatedly drunk to the point he got thrown out of school. And this is where we see that conundrum. You know, Mr. Allen does something mean, but then in reaction, he does something more mean to himself. This was the first mess that he makes like this, but this isn't going to be the last. His relationship with alcohol is also particularly bad. He can't handle it. 
After leaving Richmond, he goes to the army. And again, he starts off doing really, really well because he's really smart. And he moves up the rank to regimental sergeant major, which is as high as you can go as an enlisted person. So he goes to Mr. Allen and asks him to help him, and he does, and he gets him an appointment at the very prestigious West Point Military Academy. For sure. Uh, But, of course, he does well until he self-sabotages again. Again, because Mr. Allen won't give him money. Well, he starts skipping classes, and he got himself court-martialed for gross neglect of duties. Poor Poe. (laughs) (laughs) I mean... He just is lost, and we see this how he just floats around. He can never even find a place to settle down. He moves from city to city, and this is going to be what happens for the rest of his life. He's going to move to New York. He can't find a job there. Remember, this is one of those days in the old days where if you don't have food, well, if you don't have a job, you don't eat. There's no such thing as public assistance. So he reaches out to Mr. Allen, Mr. Allen, nothing. Which, by the way, Mr. Allen's really, really wealthy. Uh, I also want to point out that although I make it sound like he's floating around idly, he is writing and he's producing a couple of books of poems. But you can't make money as a writer in those days. You can barely make it these days. Eventually, he moves to another city, Baltimore, to live with a relative, a woman by the name of Mrs. Clem, his aunt. And he gets a little bit of luck because he gets a short story published. People like it. It attracts the attention of a recognized novelist, a woman named Mrs. John P. Kennedy. And she gets him a gig as the assistant editor at the Southern Literary Messenger, which is a very impressive literary magazine. It's a great break. It's so good that he moves again to be able to take this job. So this time, he brings Mrs. Clem and her daughter, Virginia, with him back to Richmond. So they have this new little family. He truly loves them. And I will say it's not but a few years before he marries Virginia, Mrs. Clem's daughter. Um, Which is one of those things people know about him that can gross them out. (laughs) There really is not a satisfactory explanation for why a 27-year-old man would marry a 13-year-old girl. I know. There's the bit of the yuck factor with the ages. And if it makes you feel better, they did lie. They tried to say she's 21, but no one believed them. I read some people that said you could barely believe she was 13. But it doesn't seem like they probably consummated the marriage. She just seemed like he wanted a family. And that worked out, except he couldn't be likable. He just can't be likable. He seems like actually a really jerky person. I mean, at this job, he's so arrogant and he's mean-spirited and he's always making enemies in the publishing business. He would lie to people about what he did at the magazine. He claimed to be way more important than he really was. Then in the magazine, he would lambast popular writers. He would insult the readers of the magazine itself. (laughs) I mean, it's kind of funny. I mean, I read one quote where he said this. He's going to chide all Americans. He says, American readers, well, he chides us for liking a stupid book, the better, because sure enough, it's stupidity that's American. Mm. (laughs) Well, uh, he also published stories that were so horrifying, they were insulting. A lot of people know the famous story, Berenice, where a man prepares to marry his cousin, but then actually ends up burying her alive and then digging her up again. It has 
stuff about teeth. It's so weird. It's shocking. And he does it totally on purpose. Uh, well, he was one of the first artists. And, of course, this is the concept behind all social media clickbait, but in all kinds of TV shows now. But he understood that shocking and insulting gets you noticed. And you can't be famous if no one knows who you are. And Poe actually said that. <laughs> Well, I guess that is true, but Poe kept getting himself into so much trouble. He could not moderate. He would get fired, go somewhere else, get another job, insult people all over again. It's just this real self-sabotaging pattern. Uh, He had such confidence that he was this amazing writer, and he had this incredible disdain for people who did not recognize his genius. And, of course, we can argue uh, if he was right or wrong about his talents, but history seems to agree with him. But um, regardless, he just couldn't get along. Well, I want to stop here with his life and finish this crazy tale next week. But I did want to end with a very interesting insult that relates to this story that we're getting ready to read. So in 1840, Poe is back in Philadelphia getting fired by yet one more boss. And Poe is indignant about this as his usual demeanor when he gets fired. Uh, And he fires off a letter to his boss and he says this. If by accident you have taken it into your head that I am to be insulted with impunity, I can only assume that you are an ass Nemo me impune lacessit, which is my poor attempt at reading Latin. (laughs) But this Latin phrase means this, no one insults me with impunity, Hmm. which is interesting because that is the inscription that we're going to read in the story, The Cask of Amontillado. Hmm. It's also an ironic turn of phrase because it seems there was absolutely no one in the literary world that Poe would not just blast and savage and review after review. And uh, he was a huge insulter. He even accuses Henry David Longfellow of plagiarism, uh, which from what I read Poe wasn't above himself. (laughs) No, he wasn't. He did it more than once. Uh, His whole professional life is picking one fight he can't win after another. I mean, just professional derailment for no real apparent reason. And he'd get a break, work really hard to make something happen and do something so deliberate and horrible that it guaranteed failure. And, And a lot of this was peppered by alcoholic drinking binges that all that didn't do him any good. True. Poe is a man that felt slighted by humanity. He was robbed, at least in his own mind. You can argue if he was robbed or not. But in his mind, he was robbed by the literary success that really was his birthright because of his true brilliance. There were those who were far worse than him, less talented than him, but they were getting more results than him, more money, more fame. It's no wonder that by 1846, he would write what would become one of his most famous stories. And it's a story that really channels this feeling we've all experienced, if we're honest, from time to time, when someone who is lesser than us becomes more successful and they don't recognize that their success is not earned. This person looks down on you. They have an inflated sense of themselves. And in this story, that kind of person gets what they deserve. At least, in Poe's mind, they get the cask of Amontillado. Mm. (laughs) Well, like I said, this is the first story of his that I ever remember reading. 
Well, it's a great one for a lot of reasons, and we're going to read the whole thing, but before we do, I want to give you some of the literary things to look for when you read it, because beyond channeling our desire for revenge, it's a very clever story. Poe had these rules of what he thought constituted a great story, and a cask Amontillado follows all of them. His first rule for a short story is that you should be able to sit down and read the whole thing in one setting. The second rule is that it should have a unity of impression. In other words, you should everything in the story needs to lead you to what one thing that that author is trying to do. He also thinks that a tale should be self-sufficient. It should contain within itself all that is required for its comprehension. And he does this. He's going to pack it all in. Every detail leads to something. Every word is intentional. Every name is symbolic. Every piece of dialogue is ironic. And every action takes us deeper and deeper into his crazy <laughs> reality. So let's. this is what I mean. Let's begin with the title. It's a pun. Amontillado is a kind of sh- sherry, which is a kind of wine. I'd never heard of it before this story, but it's Spanish. And a cask means a case. So at one level, a cask of Amontillado is obviously a, like a case of this particular wine. However, it's a pun. A monte, a monte is another form of the word mountain. Cask is a shortened way to say casket. So it's a casket from a mountain. <laughs> hmm. Very clever. I know. And everything in this story is like that and very deliberate. The setting is vague. We think it's Italy because of the language. Maybe Rome will assume that, but it doesn't really matter. Some people think it's France, Um, but it's obviously during Carnival. And being from Brazil, I know a little bit about Carnival. Carnival is a three-day holiday. It's a quasi-religious holiday. You're supposed to dress up, party really hard, act the fool for the last three days before Lent, Because in the Catholic tradition of Christianity, you're supposed to straighten up during Lent, the 40 days before Easter. And Easter, of course, in all of Christendom is the most holy day in the Christian faith. The year is kind of vague. There's some clues. Montressor is a mason, and that only existed in the 1730s upwards. He's wearing this roccalaire, which is this fashionable thing during the 1700s. There's a couple of other clues that let you know that it's probably in the second half of the 1700s. It's not obviously super important to pinpoint the year. The names, it's more interesting. They're coded. Fortunato obviously means fortunate, which this dude is quite unfortunate. Mm, Hence the irony. (laughs) Yes, but... It's, he's also fortunate, and that's part of the reason Montressor hates him. He apparently considers himself to be better than Montressor. He's a better wine connoisseur, although he doesn't know anything we're going to figure out because he doesn't know that Amontillado is a sherry, which I wouldn't have known that either, but I'm not of Italian lineage and a, a wine connoisseur. And we know it because he makes fun of another guy named Lucrezzi who says, the guy doesn't know Amontillado from sherry, and it's the same thing. But anyway, this all informs the reader that Fortunato is stupid. He's stupid, and he pretends that he's some blue-blooded aristocrat, but his crest isn't very impressive. He doesn't know how to look dignified. He's wearing a stupid jester costume, and he looks the fool. Literally, he's wearing an outfit of a fool. And of course, Carnival is about dressing up. But we all know, because we've been to those parties, that dressing up is a trick. You're supposed to not look like a doofus. And there's always (laughs) that person that doesn't 
pull that off. Well, Fortunato is that guy. He doesn't know how to dress up without looking like a fool, literally a fool. All the details here suggest that he's gotten really lucky in life. And he's mistaken this luck for his innate genius and talent. And he looks down on people that are better than him. Specifically, Montressor. Now, Montressor, Montressor means my treasure. He's the one with the nice heritage. He's the one that understands wine. He's the one should be getting some respect. Hmm. So as we read, are we to look for all the hidden ironies? That's it. Exactly. And I may stop and interrupt you because sometimes I just can't resist, but I'm going to try to refrain because I know that can be annoying, but there's a lot in this story. Everything is based on the irony. Everything that Montressor says when he says things like, I wouldn't want you to die from a cold. Well, we know that that's true. He wants exactly (laughs) what he's up to. And there's that kind of stuff all the way through. Even the first sentence is something to notice because it's a thesis statement. Like in an essay, the narrator is going to clearly claim this crazy primitive honor code. The idea being that if somebody insults you boldly enough, you should not only get them back, but you must do it without getting caught. Montressor is telling his story half a century after he commits this murder. He's not regretful. He's proud. It's been an artful revenge. Fortunato is a fool who dared to condescend to someone better than him. And Montressor had to put up with his arrogance, and he did so for long enough. And when we get to the part where Montressor points out the coat of arms, notice that it's a human foot crushing a snake. From Montressor's perspective, this is the story of a man getting what's coming to him. And not for any specific bad thing either, but for not knowing his place. The ultimate insult worthy of this ultimate punishment. Ooh, harsh. <laughs> Let's begin. The thousand injuries of Fortunato I had borne as I best could, but when he ventured upon insult, I vowed revenge. You who so well know the nature of my soul will not suppose, however, that I gave utterance to a threat. At length, I would be avenged. This was a point definitely settled, but the very definitiveness with which it was resolved precluded the idea of risk. I must not only punish, but punish with impunity. A wrong is unredressed when retribution overtakes its redresser. It is equally unredressed when the avenger fails to make himself felt as such to him who has done the wrong. It must be understood that neither by word nor deed had I given Fortunato cause to doubt my goodwill. I continued, as was my wont, to smile in his face, and he did not perceive that my smile now was at the thought of his emulation. He had a weak point, this Fortunato. Although in other regards he was a man to be respected and even feared, he prided himself upon his connoisseurship in wine. Few Italians have the true virtuoso spirit. For the most part, their enthusiasm is adopted to suit the time and the opportunity to practice imposture upon the British and Austrian millionaires. In painting and gemmery, Fortunato, like his countrymen, was a quack. But in the matter of old wines, he was sincere. In this respect, I did not differ from him materially. I was skillful in the Italian vintages myself and bought largely whenever I could. 
It was about dusk one evening during the supreme madness of the carnival season that I encountered my friend. He accosted me with excessive warmth, for he had been drinking much. The man wore motley. He had on a tight-fitting part-stripped dress, and his head was surmounted with the conical cap and bells. I was so pleased to see him that I thought I should never have done wringing his hand. I said to him, My dear Fortunato, you are luckily met. How remarkably well you are looking today. But I have received a pipe of wine that passes for Amontillado, and I have my doubts. How? Amontillado? A pipe? Impossible. And in the middle of the carnival? I have my doubts, and I was silly enough to pay the full Amontillado price without consulting you in a matter. You were not to be found, and I was fearful of losing a bargain. Amontillado? I have my doubts. Amontillado? And I must satisfy Amontillado? As you are engaged, I'm on my way to Lucrezia. If anyone has a critical turn, it is he. He will tell me. Lucrezia cannot tell Amontillado from Sherry. And yet some fools will have it that his taste is a match for your own. Uh, come, let us go. Whither? To your vaults. My friend, no, I will not impose upon your good nature. I perceive you have an engagement. Look crazy. I have no engagement, come. My friend, no, it is not the engagement, but the severe cold with which I perceived you are afflicted. The vaults are insufferably damp. They are encrusted with nitre. Let us go, nevertheless. The cold is merely nothing. Amontillado, you have been imposed upon. And as for Lucrezia, he cannot distinguish Sherry from Amontillado. Thus speaking, Fortunato possessed himself of my arm, and putting on a mask of black silk and drawn a rocaler closely about my person, I suffered him to hurry me to my palazzo. There were no attendants at home. They had absconded to make merry in the honor of the time. I had told them that I should not return until the morning and had given them explicit orders not to stir from the house. These orders were sufficient, I well knew, to ensure their immediate disappearance, <laughs> one and all, as soon as my back was turned. I took from their sconces two flambeaux, and giving one to Fortunato, bowed him through several suites of rooms to the archway that led into the vaults. I passed down a long and winding staircase, requesting him to be cautious as he followed. We came at length to the foot of the descent and stood together upon the damp ground of the catacombs of the Montressors. The gait of my friend was unsteady, and the bells upon his cap jingled as he strode. The pipe... It is further on, but observe the white webwork which gleams from these cavern walls. He turned toward me and looked into my eyes with two filmy orbs that distilled the room of intoxication. Niter? Niter, I replied. How long have you had that cough? <coughs> my poor friend found it impossible to reply for many minutes. It is nothing. Calm, I said with decision, we will go back. Your health is precious. You're rich, respected, admired, beloved. You are happy as once I was. You are a man to be missed. For me, it is no matter. We will go back. You will be ill, and I cannot be responsible. Besides, this is Lucrezia. <coughs> Enough. The cough is a mere nothing. It will not kill me. I will not die of a cough. True, true. And indeed, I had no intention of alarming you unnecessarily, but you should use all proper caution. A draft of this medic will defend us from the damps. And you notice he won't die of a cough. <laughs> <laughs> Here I knocked off the neck of a bottle, which I drew from a long row of its fellows that lay upon the mold. Drink, I said, presenting him the wine. He raised it to his lips with a leer. 
He paused and nodded to me familiarly with his bells jingling. He raised it to his lips with a leer. He paused and nodded to me familiarly while his bells jingled. I drink to the buried that repose around us. And I to your long life. He again took my arm and we proceeded. These vaults are extensive. The Montressors were a great and numerous family. I forget your arms. A huge human foot dior on a field azure. The foot crushes a serpent rampant whose fangs are embedded in the heel. And the motto? Nemo me impune lecessit. And remember, that's the line that he said from the boss. And I probably said it as improperly in Latin <laughs> as you did earlier. Good, he said. The wine sparkled in his eyes and the bells jingled. My own fancy grew warm with the medic. We had passed through long walls of piled skeletons with casks and puncheons intermingling into the inmost recesses of the catacombs. I paused again and this time I made bold to seize Fortunato by an arm above the elbow. The nitre, I said, see, it increases. It hangs like moss upon the vaults. We are below the river's bed. The drops of moisture trickle among the bones. Come, we will go back ere it is too late. Your cough. It is nothing. Let us go on. But first, another drop of the medoc. <laughs> <laughs> I broke and reached him a flecken of de grave. He emptied it at a breath. His eyes flashed with a fierce light. He laughed and threw the bottle upwards with a gesticulation I did not understand. I looked at him in surprise. He repeated the movement, a grotesque one. You do not understand. Not I. Then you are not of the Brotherhood. How? You are not of the Masons. Yes, yes, yes. You? <laughs> Impossible. A Mason? A Mason. A sign. It is this, I answered, producing from beneath the folds of my rocolar a trowel. You jest, but let us proceed to the Amontillado. Be it so, I said, replacing the tool beneath the cloak and again offering him my arm. He leaned upon it heavily. We continued our route in search of the Amontillado. We passed through a range of low arches, descended, passed on, and descending again, arrived at a deep crypt in which the foulness of the air caused our flambeau rather to glow than flame. At the most remote end of the crypt, there appeared another less spacious. Its walls had been lined with human remains, piled to the vault overhead in the fashion of the great catacombs of Paris. Three sides of this interior crypt were still ornamented in this manner. From the fourth side, the bones had been thrown down and lay promiscuously upon the earth, forming at one point a mount of some size. Within a wall thus exposed by the displacing of the bones, we perceived a still interior crypt or recess, in depth about four feet, in width three, in height six or seven. It seemed to have been constructed for no special use within itself, but formed merely the interval between two of the colossal supports of the roof of the catacombs, and was backed by one of their circumscribing walls of solid granite. It was in vain that Fortunato, uplifting his dull torch, endeavored to pry into the depth of the recess. Its termination, the feeble light, did not enable us to see. Proceed, I said. Herein is the Amontillado. As for Lucrezia... He's an ignoramus. 
interrupted my friend as he stepped unsteadily forward, while I followed immediately at his heels. In an instant, he had reached the extremity of the niche, and finding his progress arrested by the rock, stood stupidly bewildered. A moment more, and I had fettered him to the granite. In its surface were two iron staples, distant from each other about two feet. Horizontally, from one of these depended a short chain, from the other a padlock. Throwing the links about his waist, it was but the work of a few seconds to secure it. He was too much astounded to resist. Withdrawing the key, I stepped back from the recess. Pass your hand, I said, over the wall. You cannot help feeling the nitre. Indeed, it is very damp. Once more, let me implore you to return. No, then I must positively leave you. But I will first render you all the little attentions in my power. The Amontillado! True, I replied, the Amontillado. As I said these words, I busied myself among the pile of bones of which I have before spoken. Throwing them aside, I soon uncovered a quantity of building stone and mortar. With these materials and with the aid of my trowel, I began vigorously to wall up the entrance of the niche. I had scarcely laid the first tier of the masonry when I discovered that the intoxication of Fortunato had in great measure worn off. The earliest indication I had of this was a low moaning cry from the depth of the recess. It was not the cry of a drunken man. There was then a long and obstinate silence. I laid the second tier and the third and the fourth, and then I heard the furious vibration of the chain. The noise lasted for several minutes, during which that I might hearken to it with the more satisfaction. I ceased my labors and sat down upon the bones. When at last the clanking subsided, I resumed the trowel and finished without interruption the fifth, the sixth, and the seventh tier. The wall was now nearly upon a level with my breast. I again paused and, holding the flambeau over the masonwork, threw a few feeble rays upon the figure within. A succession of loud and shrill screams, bursting suddenly from the throat of the chained form, seemed to thrust me violently back. For a brief moment, I hesitated. I trembled. Unsheathing my rapier, I began to grope with it about the recess, but the thought of an instant reassured me. I placed my hand upon the solid fabric of the catacombs and felt satisfied. I reapproached the wall. I replied to the yells of him who clamored. I re-echoed, I aided, I surpassed them in volume and in strength. I did this, and the clamorer grew still. It was now midnight, and my task was drawing to a close. I had completed the eighth, the ninth, and the tenth tier. I had finished a portion of the last and the eleventh. There remained but a single stone to be fitted and plastered in. I struggled with its weight. I placed it partially in its destined position. But now there came from out the niche a low laugh that erected the hairs upon my head. It was succeeded by a sad voice which I had difficulty in recognizing as that of the noble Fortunato. The voice said, Oh, he, he, a very good joke indeed. An excellent jest. We will have many a rich laugh about it at the palazzo. <laughs> Over our wine. <laughs> the Amontillado. <laughs> yes, the Amontillado. But isn't it not getting late? Will not they be awaiting us at the palazzo? The Lady Fortunato and the rest? Let us be gone. Yes, I said, let us be gone. 
For the love of God, Montressor. Yes, for the love of God. But to these words I hearkened in vain for a reply. I grew impatient. I called aloud, Fortunato! No answer. I called again, Fortunato! No answer still. I thrust a torch through the remaining aperture and let it fall within. There came forth in return only a jingling of the bells. My heart grew sick. It was the dampness of the catacombs that made it so. I hastened to make an end of my labor. I forced the last stone into its position. I plastered it up against the new masonry. I re-erected the old rampart of the bones. For the half of a century, no mortal has disturbed them. In pace, requies cat. <laughs> Pretty gruesome story. Mm. Well, I don't know if I should say peace out on that note. <laughs> oh, I don't know. But thanks for being with us today. Um, check us out on our How to Love Lit podcast page, our Facebook page, our pod page, and our Instagram page. And for real, peace out. <laughs> <laughs>